When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's kind of how research is going to shift, I think, away from just asking someone at one point in time how do you feel about your body to understanding that it's constantly in flux all the time from something at like mm. the season because it's hot and you've got to wear things that show your body through to the specific person you're hanging out with. Welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling and science to better understand our relationship with our bodies. I'm Honey Ross. And I'm Nadia Craddock. And this is season four. Hello, my darling Nadia. How are you doing today? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually currently sat by a log-burning fire, which is making me very sleepy, but it's very wonderful. I can't complain. It explains the rest of that I am in about five layers in my freezing apartment, and you are in a little strappy I'm top. I'm in a tiny <laughs> little vest, yeah. <laughs> no, I kind of was like, it looks like we're in different seasons completely. You do look very like love actually like fantasy with the kind of turtleneck though. I love it. You look very cozy. Yeah, I'm being quite tight with my heating. Um it's one of those weird things it's of like working sensible. from home. But um I've actually been excited to tell you I did a dance class this week. Oh yes, of course. Tell me about it. How was it? It was so nice. I mean I haven't done dance in a really long time and I'm obviously not like a, g- a good professional dancer, but the, what again, what is a good dancer? But it was so fun, and I did it with my mum, which was very wholesome. I don't know how she'll feel about me sharing that, but it was really nice. What, um, was it to a particular track? Was it choreographed? What What was the vibe? It was quite nice. Is It was, like, semi-freeform. It was, like, we did, like, a dance as the track went. Like, it was, like, lots of different tracks. So we did a bit, like, we danced to, like, an Ash Nico, but we also danced to, like, the song Burlesque from the film Burlesque. Like, you know, really, like, a broad variety but it's just so nice. It's, like, so nice to be in motion and, like, we properly, like, we were in a little room with, like, full dance mirrors. It felt very proper. It was great. Oh, amazing. Shall we get into our episode for this week? Yes, let's get into our episode. It was such a lovely one. We spoke to a good friend of mine, Scott Griffiths, who is based in Melbourne, Australia, so has been in lockdown for a very long time. Um, although currently is now no longer in lockdown over there. No, I think he got out just the day we spoke to him. Didn't yes, he? he is. He's free. He's a free. He's free now. He's a free man. He's a free man, exactly. Um, and we got him on because we wanted to speak about body image in men, and so that's what we spoke about, as well as taking a bit of a deeper dive into the appearance ideals for men, bigorexia, toxic masculinity, and how that factors in to how men think and feel about the way they look. 
we actually have a wonderful knowledge noodle at the end of the episode going back into what Scott had said, referencing how seasons affect body image. So stick around for the end of that to hear it. It's wonderful. And it ties very nicely into what we were talking about earlier with uh, our different clothing. <laughs> different seasonal outfits, exactly. Okay, Scott, welcome to the body protest. It's great to have you. Could you, for us, give a very brief introduction to yourself? Sure. I'm a researcher at the University of Melbourne, Australia, and I look at body image and eating disorders. Wonderful. Very, Short and sweet. Very good. Yeah, that's how we like it. Um, Scott, would you mind telling us a bit about how you got into researching and body image specifically? Sure. I remember being in undergrad and hearing comments from men and women alike expressing insecurities around appearance. And I remember dating women and having a couple of girlfriends around that time and often come up in that context too and wondering if there was research in this area. And then that's how I discovered there's a whole field of research looking at this and just found it really fascinating and never looked back. Mm. What made you kind of want to specialise in eating disorders, if you don't mind me asking? Or is it similar to that effect? No, I I worked at a cinema when I was a teenager. It was actually a very cool teenage job. I recommend it to anyone. That is a very cool teenage job. I'm quite envious. That's very (laughs) cool. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was working there, there was this woman who had anorexia, though I didn't realise it at the time. And she would describe her struggles with trying to put on weight and how she saw herself and I remember being really confused because the obvious solution to her problem was to eat more and I could not understand why that was such an issue at all. Uh, I would have been the classic stigmatizer of not understanding it in the slightest and only came some years later to realize, oh, it's likely much more complex than that. But I think that early interaction kept it a salient thing for me and influenced a lot of the early research that I did on stigma in the context of eating disorders. Wow, so it kind of came from a place of really wanting to understand. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you start off doing like statistics or something as a degree and then you pivoted to psychology? If I remembered that right. I was doing psychophysics. Like... Psychophysics? I mean, I know this is completely wrong, but I'm imagining telekinesis and I know that that's not correct. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's not a... That sounds more <laughs> exciting. If it had been that exciting, maybe I would have stuck with it. <laughs> but in my psychology honours, you get allocated a supervisor and I got allocated to do psychophysics, which is where you have people in a really dark room and they look at really simplified stimuli on a computer screen and do little keyboard presses. Mm. And it was really interesting on a academic level, but mm-hmm. I really <laughs> desperately wanted to do something that didn't bore people when I described it to them at parties and it felt a little more salient to me. So I changed my PhD six months in abruptly and it, yeah, never looked back. Well, we're very grateful that you didn't because the work you do is wonderful. I wonder, are there many other men focusing on body image and eating disorders in the field? It kind of feels like a very female-focused field. That's probably a generalisation, but I would be intrigued to know, is this an issue that when it comes to advancing, prioritising work and tackling eating disorders in men, is this one occasion where we do really need more men? There's quite a number of people looking at male body image and eating disorders and that whole constellation of body image kind of things that guys can 
feel distressed by. I suspect there's a lot more than when even I started, but I think I was part of a wave of people paying a lot more attention to it and in a fashion that was more sophisticated than just, oh, are there gender differences when we look quite crudely at how men and women score on a scale or respond to a particular thing. Two more sophisticated research programs like, oh, what what does an eating perspective the whole body you're trying to attain for yourself is completely different and requires different exercise programs and diets to achieve. So yeah, I sometimes think the statement of men are underrepresented in the body image field might not really be accurate now. I think there's lots of research being done. That's really good to hear because it's not what you'd expect and it, you know, which is probably a me thing, but it's it's really nice to hear that that's kind of getting more covered because it is such a prevalent issue in, you know, all people. Yeah, I think you can definitely have, I mean, I think there's definitely room for great representation on different domains within the field of eating disorders. I think there's still, you know, we haven't reached complete parity and equity across the field yet. So, but I think maybe in terms of men, I, I think... Perhaps, yeah, there are definitely more, but I think there is that cliche of it being quite female-focused. And I think you go to a conference, you go to ICD, so the International Conference of Eating Disorders, and it is more women than men, I think, still at this point. It's interesting. And in in a world where it's like every field is so male-dominated, this is, from my experience, one where you're like, oh, no, this is... Like, there's one guy at my centre currently, so it is different. So we haven't spoken on this podcast much about eating disorders in men really at all. Um, Obviously, men get eating disorders too across all the different diagnoses. And you touched on there about a different ideal that men may be trying to achieve. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how eating disorders might manifest in men specifically and kind of any kind of key themes that you look out for? Sure. So there's different levels of difference when you're looking at men versus women. And in many respects, eating disorders between men and women can be largely identical. So if you want to take anorexia, for example, if your cardinal problems and sufferings are around wanting to be thin, then how it looks if you're a man versus how it looks if you're a woman is remarkably similar in terms of the core symptomology that define the disorder and the the precursors and the risk factors that have led you to this place down through to the treatments that you would put in place to try to get someone out of that. Certainly men might be underrepresented in treatment settings and that can make it more challenging for them to feel integrated and like they belong and for the treatment to, you know, work its best. But phenomenology of disorder is pretty similar of course when you take it to different level more foundational level of okay are there foundational differences in how men and women want to look and if you take that to a clinical extreme how might the manifestation of an eating disorder be different now you're starting to question what an eating disorder looks like especially in the minds of many people who i think synonymize eating disorders with anorexia and that's where you get muscle dysmorphia or bigorexia which is the extreme of saying hey i'd like to be really lean and muscular and jacked that taken to a preoccupation that impairs someone looks very different to anorexia and a lot of research on male eating disorders i think took off 
because that was a very useful illustration of how a gender difference can actually be very substantial if you look in the right places. Great. Can you talk a little bit for maybe people who haven't heard of bigorexia or those kind of that muscular orientated issues that men can experience? Can you just talk a little bit more about what that is and what that might look like or involve? Yeah, sure. So if you think of anorexia as a drive for thinness taken to an extreme that really harms an individual's physical and mental well-being, then muscle dysmorphia is a drive for muscularity taken to an extreme. It's harming their well-being. It's not a guy wishing he had a six-pack or being a weekend warrior at the gym. It's someone who is so preoccupied with wanting a lean and muscular body that it's impairing their quality of life. It's the kinds of behaviors that could be construed as extreme, could be refusing to eat any food that you haven't prepared yourself because you don't know the the macronutrient breakdown of it, meaning the protein, the fats, the carbohydrate content. And yeah, it looks very different to the eating disorders I think most people are familiar with. Would you say toxic masculinity comes into play in a lot of these concerns with uh, body image when it comes to, and, and disordered eating when it comes to men? Yeah, absolutely. Like gender roles are straight through eating disorders at every level, in my opinion. If mm. the way you think women ought to be is thin and pretty, you will have a susceptibility to developing anorexia nervosa. And similarly, if you think that men to be male and male and masculine is to be physically dominant and formidable and to seem like you have your shit together and you've got emotional self-restraint, our cultural conception of who that man is, who we imagine, he is a big, tough, strong, stoic guy. He's got clear musculature. And that's just not my conjecture that is borne out by studies of how people perceive bodies that look like that. They perceive them as more masculine. If you grow up and you want to be masculine, if you have that thought like, oh, you know, I want to be a man, then building a formidable muscular body is one way of doing that. And our society often encourages implicitly and explicitly people to build their lifestyles around those masculine and feminine archetypes to their detriment. Yeah, it makes me think of a couple of things. I think it makes me think of also in terms of help seeking and people not then if they are struggling being able to express that as well in terms of how masculinity comes into it. And then also in terms of like the, we talk about body talk quite a lot on the podcast and like the whole and particularly when we've been speaking about it in the past, we've been speaking about it among women and like, oh, you know, you look great, you look thin and like how problematic some of those phrases can be. But then I, thinking about it with men, I think there's more banter um, and it kind Mm. of feels a little bit more like you have to be able to take it because you're a man. You can't be like, ooh, you can't. um, Yeah. I think it might be harder to be like, excuse me, I'm not talking about that anymore because it hurts my feelings, you know, like um, it's a hard thing to say. (laughs) I laughed, but I just felt sad. Like, it made me think of one of my childhood male best friends who just got like bullied body image wise. And it's like, 
and you just have to take it. Is there much research on on body talk in men or like do you have any any thoughts on on that side of things, Scott? Yeah. So there's nothing in the research or anecdotally that leads me to believe that body comments in the context of banter are somehow less concerning for the recipients and targets of it mm. than the kind of chat that would happen outside of the context of banter. I think that's part of the masculine archetype is that the requirements to uphold banter and to be good at it as something I enjoy personally, by the way, having grown up in it and being, you know, reasonably cheeky and snippy, there is a tendency for banter to be hurtful, but for you to have to remain stoic in the face of it because that's part of the skill set of being able to banter. It's a loss to get salty at banter, if that makes sense. And I think years and years of operating in those spaces makes it so that men are more likely to minimise these kinds of worries or anxieties or outright dismiss them or turn to self-deprecating jokes and humour, which can more easily fit into the context of banter and to never quite engage with it properly in the same way that I think women and girls are socialised to. But do you think we need to, I don't know, because then it, it becomes so hard to be like, how do you, you can't say like, oh, don't engage in banter at all, because that's, I don't think that that's one is realistic or either necessary, but like how do you, like to be like, can we just not focus on everyone's weight or everyone's height or whatever, and whatever the kind of like key insecurities are, like your, your skin shade, whatever. I feel like it is a much harder conversation yeah. to have with guys. Uh, I mean, I've, got a broad opinion, which is that people can be funny and entertaining without alluding to people's physical mm. appearance, but also a broad range absolutely. of subjects and topics which can make people feel poorly. It's what happens when you watch a stand-up comedian who manages to be really funny, but who doesn't achieve that by riffing on topics that are divisive or can make people feel poorly absolutely be done yeah without punching down you don't have to punch down to score a laugh and go for people's body and weight I mean I think you know what's interesting I I mean not to bring it to drag race but this season with drag race I was the first AFAB queen on UK drag uh, drag race and it was so interesting because one of the younger male queens made a joke about her weight and it was the first time I've ever seen drag queens go, no, no, you don't. And it's so interesting, the kind of um, double standard of how these uh, predominantly like, you know, all all types of people are on drag race. But a lot of the time there is a lot of body shaming amongst gay men in drag race. And if it's a woman, no, no, like that is completely off limits. And I think that's really interesting. That is very interesting. And I think actually it's a beautiful, beautiful link into um, a a bit of a topic I want to get into is, so we know from the literature, we've got loads of studies that show that gay and bisexual men are often considered to be at higher risk for developing an eating disorder, engaging in disordered eating. And again, for people who are new to this space but want to learn more, I wonder, Scott, if you could just talk a little bit about why that might be. And what, yeah, what you know about that. Yeah, appearance pressures are hot housed in the gay community. It's called 
the gay male gaze. And as an analogue to the male gaze, you have two genders who place conspicuous value on physical appearance. And there's a culture in which physical appearance is particularly prized because of those two gazes being the, the dominant ones in those communities. So you kind of have to be hot to have value. It just has a very distinct, clear value to it. Masculinity is also explicitly prized as well in gay communities. There are plenty of research articles on top of popular culture articles talking about the phenomenon of mask for mask, which was a pretty common statement in gay dating app profiles. Just basically saying I'm a masculine man and I want another masculine man, but masculinity is always synonymous with a very specific body type, one we alluded to earlier, just one that is capable of being perceived as projecting formidability, uh, physical prowess. That's a lean and muscular body. Well, also on the flip of uh, people asking for mask for mask, literally on dating apps, on gay dating apps, you are allowed to write things. I mean, allowed, define allowed, but people write things like no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Like it is overtly discriminatory. And yeah, I mean, there are obviously wonderful things in the community, but that is such a toxic flip side of it. Yeah. And you don't see as much of that now, but it's not because it's gone away. It's a shift from what was considered to be acceptable when it was over to, oh, it's acceptable only if it's covert now, which doesn't solve mm. the problem. It just makes it more polite and palatable. But, it, but more insidious in a lot of ways. More insidious, yes, because the recipients are less able to discern if that is why they have been rejected, for instance, versus something else which could be conceived of as a legitimate reason. And that is an uncomfortable space to be in when you have to second guess what is actually taking place in the context of romantic rejection as a specific example. But in the gay community and broadly, I would say, we're reconciling what are acceptable grounds for desiring people. And that's a bit of a broader topic, I suppose. But there are those who would say, okay, if I'm attracted to people who look a certain way, that's a personal preference. And there is some legitimacy to that. There is also legitimacy to the claim that who we're attracted to is shaped by social and cultural forces, which can be unjust. And you have questions of what are our obligations to be more equitable in our desires? And do we want to impose those on people, given that many groups in the population at large have had their desires subjugated for a very long time. That would include gay people, it would include women. It's all very tricky and you have to be very uh, mindful of where the zeitgeist is at, but where attraction meets bodies and body ideals, that gets real complicated. It's also where people feel a lot of their personal dissatisfaction in the context of romantic domains. Totally, and I think you get a lot of anxiety around dating because of appearance, and then and then people maybe feel more comfortable when they potentially are in a relationship, though not always. Um, but what I often get from guys in, a, in an audience when talking about body image would be that, like, isn't it evolutionary to, to want to 
be with someone that's attractive and it it comes up every time and I like, like, define oh. attractive I think that's the thing and like define masculine this is the thing of like we need to be able to renegotiate what these words mean and like you know like I always say I'm my own beauty standard and I think in terms of like I'm I've always tried to be attracted to my actual taste not what I've been told to like and I think it's so important for people to actually go back inside and actually think about that but that's it and then also our like the appearance standards like our beauty standards attractiveness standards for all genders have become more and more narrow over time so it's like what we now deem to be attractive in society has become it's one look and then when that happens you're like our view on what's attractive is warped because it's distorted by society and I with men in particular we've seen and maybe Scott if you could just talk about this but we've seen how like even like dolls of men have got more and more muscular over 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 the decades how images of men have become have shifted like we talk a lot about with women we all go from like Marilyn Monroe to Twiggy to heroin chic to like Kim Kardashian but we see we've also seen changing trends in men and and Scott I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that for us I will I am going to make a cheeky little comment on something that was at the start of that which is that I also often get the evolutionary psych argument attraction I do believe there's probably a foundational truth in there but like many things that occur in societies and cultures it gets magnified and made outsized and that's why they feel narrow our beauty ideals because they are i think we'll always have inequities in attraction i think the reasons why we have them and what those inequities are are often in unjust but i think the inequity laws always be there that's a broader chat so comment on what you're saying Nadia. yeah the body standards for men in particular have changed a great deal in recent decades. I think men had the luxury to not have to worry about their appearance for a very long time. And I think very strong patriarchal forces are what allowed for men not to have to worry about that because the means with which you could become attractive to women or be successful were very stable and laid out, could be a breadwinner, uh, the protector, you were the head of the household by default, these positions of respect. That's increasingly not the case. And I think that has meant men now compete in the arena of appearance and corporations will always fill a void where there are anxieties that they can sell products and services that will ameliorate those. And yeah, as a beauty ideal for men has been established and become increasingly narrow, I think we've seen more men worry about how they look, not like their body and experience eating body image disorders of various manifestations. I was going to say, has there been a study that you've done or read that has changed your mind um, or at least been particularly influential in how you think about body image or eating disorders in men? It wouldn't be anything I've done. <laughs> But that would, I'd love if you did answer that one, actually, a piece of my <laughs> no, work. That <laughs> also, it could be because our studies are made up of people, right? Like, so people give us the answers to our studies. So actually what someone has said in a study, you're like, oh, you know what? That has actually changed my mind. Like, I feel like that is, I don't think it, ha- I don't think it has to be a very egotistical, like, yes, my, my, no. my, my work is so excellent. <laughs> well, how about 
I think the most compelling thing I've read recently in this space, and I'll bring it up because we were touching on it just before, is a book by a woman named Amir Srinivasan. It's called The Right to Sex, and it deals with inequities in desire and the degree to which those are just and to which we have a moral obligation to change and flirts with potential strategies for remediating those. And the reason I'm singling that one out is because ultimately so many of these body change strategies and the reason why we feel dissatisfied is because it influences how attractive we feel, how attractive we feel and attractions in the eyes of other people who perceive us. And yeah, there are very clear hierarchies that delineate who's attractive and who's not. It's not entirely clear how someone is meant to go about challenging those in a way that would be meaningful and result in them being attracted to someone else potentially who might not otherwise be the obvious strategies for doing it seem very icky like should you go on a date with someone that you're not attracted to well like to see to see if you can feel the spark or make yourself attracted to them sure because everything else that's not concrete amounts to just challenge yourself should we do we tell people to try be more broadly attracted to unlearn what could be a social and cultural influence that has determined that they're only attracted to people in thin young bodies if you're a woman or lean muscular white bodies if uh, you're attracted to men it's challenging it's really hard we're compelling people to live and operate in this space and to be body positive for example I think that's very challenging in the context of romance and romantic attraction and rejection and but at the same time are you gonna turn around and tell say uh, a gay man who would have in the very uh, recent history decades of subjugation and being told that you can have your attractions changed toward heterosexual men that that person needs to do that work more that they're not just born this way so it's, it's real messy but that's where we're gonna head that's where everyone needs to head because once we reconcile attraction with body image for both men and women, I think we can have more compassionate uh, understandings of each other. That's very that's very interesting, something to definitely think on. Scott, is there anything that you're doing, you're working on right now that you're excited about, want to share, or anything that's we... I mean, I know it's a very sweeping, quick conversation, but anything that you want to, to mention on this kind of like introduction to body image, eating disorders in men. I wish I hadn't added that last part. I was going to say it's been a very long lockdown and I learned how to bake and I can do oh, lemon meringue. Oh, well, no, but that's... So what, you can do a lemon meringue pie? Oh, absolutely. I can do the, the pastry from scratch. It's great. Wow. Rock solid. That's one thing I'm happy to fly my flag high on, you know. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Can you stretch to key lime? Yeah, I can stretch for a key lime. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Absolutely. And then we can Happily. really we can really talk. We can really talk then. I'll be <laughs> happy with it. All I want is to collaborate. Uh, something something I'm excited on in the in body eating disorders. Uh, we are oh, so at the risk of breaching the the anonymity of peer review, we did a study of 
four and a half billion tweets on Twitter to see if we could discover seasonal shifts in people's dieting anxieties. And sure enough, turns out that when spring comes around, dieting really ramps up in intensity all around the world, but at different at different times of the year because of the northern hemisphere versus the southern. And the apprehension that is springtime dieting leads and is in direct response to the summertime body anxieties that are happening. So we can map how corporations respond to that, how people respond in tandem. And yeah, I just think that's interesting. Anything that uses big data in the context of social media can help us tap into the zeitgeist of what's going on. I think that's pretty fun. Yeah, but no, that's, that's um, absolutely fascinating. That's very cool. And like you, I've read the paper that you've written about the seasonal body dissatisfaction, like people's like feeling more insecure about their bodies during the summer months. That's kind of how research is going to shift, I think, away from just asking someone at one point in time, how do you feel about your body, to understanding that it's constantly in flux all the time from something at like mm. the season because it's hot and you've got to wear things that show your body through to the specific person you're hanging out with, which someone in a paper last year, I can't recall the author's name, so I'm remiss not to, they call it relational body image. I'm like, that's dope. It's great. My body image is depending on who I hang out with. It makes total sense. I'm like, yeah, cool. Uh, and that's it. And we always talk about that, right, in terms of we say, like, body image changes all like, mm-hmm. all, all the time. It's, it's not a static construct, but actually to be able to to think about that more concretely and be like, oh, yeah, over the seasons it changes. Depending on who you who you are with, it changes. I think, um, yeah, very neat. And the the big data stuff is very exciting, so I'm excited to read that. I'm not peer-reviewing it, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're good on that front. I was going to ask to kind of close off, do you have any recommendations uh, for people who want to support men and boys in their life around this kind of thing? Yeah. Just keep encouraging them to talk. I wouldn't construe a dismissal, especially with humour, of body image concerns or a self-deprecating joke as just being that. Sure, it can be, but it's such a common first response in men who genuinely dislike some part of their bodies that I would Mm -hmm. make it clear that you're there and open to chat if it actually is bothering them. Mm, That's so important. Yeah. Because men and boys live in the same world we do. It's a world that still thinks, for example, that if you're on a large body, you're incompetent and lazy and a slob. And men are just as smart as women. They see that too. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, good. Very important. Also kind of tackles that masculinity component that we'll talk, or the toxic masculinity component we're talking about earlier in our conversation. Um, Scott, this has been wonderful. Tell our audience how they can support you, find your work, if there's any anything you want to plug. There's nothing I want to plug. Uh, I am on Twitter if you want to follow me. I'm not as active as I used to be, so maybe don't. But, I mean, support this podcast because uh, podcasts like this, I've done podcasts with Nadi before and she's really the one doing all of the effort to reach out to people and make it more pressing in the zeitgeist so thank you follow Nadia and her work <laughs> thank you Scott that's, oh, very, that's very a lovely great. answer come again but you know what we are going to link your uh we're going to link your TED talk in oh. our show notes because you know let the people know 
Um, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me. So if we are having our dream dinner party, which is Scott is making us a gorgeous pie for dessert, I think the main course obviously has to be a piping hot bowl of knowledge noodles, which I believe you have prepared for us today. I certainly do. I did not have Scott down as a baker, but, you know, you always learn new things about people and I can see it. I can now see it. I did know that he's very resourceful, so it makes sense. He's also very thoughtful. So the the list of desserts for all his favourite people sounds about right it's so wholesome i mean like that really it surprised me in the best way like what a lovely man i would love if we could talk a bit more actually about the study he mentioned about body image shifting with the seasons yes i think that's a really great idea and as we were talking about earlier we are dressed for two different seasons and we (laughs) (laughs) um i feel like we're in two uh, the rooms we're in are, are different different seasons it's very cold over here um and it's also a good time because we in the northern hemisphere are going into winter whilst it's the start of the summer over where scott is in the southern hemisphere so the paper it's called beach body ready shredding for summer a first look at seasonal body image and it was published this year earlier this year in june in the journal body image and it was led by scott Wow. So can you define, can you tell me what seasonal body image is? Yeah. So in the paper, they talk about it or they define it as within person variation in body image that occurs across the Gregorian seasons. So it's essentially how your body image fluctuates according to the seasons. So it's a fun idea, I think. So the underlying idea is that body image is not a static construct. So although people's baselines differ, an individual person's body image can fluctuate up or down in response to certain triggers. So this can happen within the course of the day. For example, if you're spending too much time comparing your body to people on the internet, or if someone's made a negative comment about your body, or you've been engaging in body talk or diet talk in general. So all of those things can make you feel momentarily worse about your body, but that can be fleeting. It's normally the cumulative effect that can kind of transition you to to feeling worse overall and then the reverse is also true so small actions can lead to immediate boosts in body confidence or positive body image so things like gratitude practice saying kind things to and about your body activities that foster embodiment so and that mind body connection so things like yoga or spending time out in nature so all, all of the things that we we talk about a lot on the podcast So anyway, that's how a person's body image can fluctuate over the course of a day. But here, the argument in the paper is that a person's body image can fluctuate over the course of the year, depending on the season, with the hypothesis that people will feel worse about their body in the summer months. I mean, that does make a lot of sense at face value. So how did Scott and his colleagues put this to the test? So the data is mostly based on gay and bisexual men. There was a small number of pansexual and questioning men as well. Um, And then all of the people who were involved in the study were either living in the Northern Hemisphere, so specifically living in the UK, the USA, or Canada. And then there were also a group of men who were living in the Southern Hemisphere, so specifically Australia. And so in total, there were just over 800 men who took part. So why specifically just non-straight men? Yeah, good question. I thought this might come up. So... It's because it's part of a much larger study that Scott's leading called Gay Bodies 
worldwide. And interestingly, all the participants are recruited via Grindr, so the dating app. That's so brilliant. So it's, yeah, a very good way of a, like a company helping with research to kind of cast a broad net and bring in people. Yes, That's exactly. amazing. Exactly. How how did they do the research? Tell oh, me, yeah. let's, tell me let's, how they put it to the test. Let's get into the to the methods. Um, so in this particular paper, findings are based on a single online questionnaire. One of our favourite research. A lot of papers are based on questionnaires. So um, participants were asked, on average, how satisfied are you with your appearance during? And then they're given the four different months. So spring, summer, autumn, slash fall, depending if you're in America or not, um, and then winter. And they have to respond on a continuum from extremely satisfied to extremely dissatisfied. Um, and then participants also responded to questions about muscularity dissatisfaction and body fat dissatisfaction, as well as body appreciation, body functionality appreciation, as well as questions on various mechanisms that may influence seasonal body image. Okay, and what did they end up finding? Do people experience this seasonal body image? So overall, they found that participants in both hemispheres reported feeling worse in their bodies in the summer months, supporting the idea of seasonal seasonal body image. Um, in the paper, there's some great images that illustrate body dissatisfaction and how that changes in spring, summer, autumn and winter for both people living in the northern hemisphere and for people living in the southern hemisphere. And they found that out of all participants, 70% reported seasonal body dissatisfaction, meaning that 70% of the people who completed the questionnaire reported some variation in their body dissatisfaction across the seasons. And then, so that was like two components of it. So does seasonal body dissatisfaction exist? Is it When is it worse? And it's worse in the summer. And then the next set of findings they present are what predicts that or what factors are associated with seasonal body dissatisfaction so muscularity dissatisfaction body fat dissatisfaction bmi and age were all associated with experiences of seasonal body dissatisfaction but body appreciation body functionality appreciation social economic status minority sexual orientation relationship status and skin color all were not associated with seasonal body dissatisfaction so what they write is that Greater negative body image predicted stronger seasonal body image, but greater positive body image did not predict weaker seasonal body image. Interestingly, greater muscularity dissatisfaction and body fat dissatisfaction were uniquely and positively associated with the strength of seasonal body image. And then of these, muscularity dissatisfaction was more consistent. So individuals who are generally unhappy with the appearance of their muscles are more susceptible to seasonal shifts in their body image which I thought was interesting and I think also reminded me that we're focusing on a male sample here, which which is interesting to think about, but I do think that this can apply to other genders as well, for sure. But it definitely, no, it's important to remember it's a male sample and it does, yeah, it's interesting. It's a different kind of angle of looking at it, isn't it? So what do they think causes people to feel worse about their bodies in summer? Yeah, great question. And so they put four different mechanisms to the test and it's all very intuitive and honey I know you and I have spoken about this before but um, they looked at appearance related pressure from media advertisements, they looked at appearance related pressure from peers on social media, they then looked at 
feeling like one's body is on public display, and then finally looked at tendency towards appearance comparisons. And then they found all of these things were most pronounced during the summer compared to the other seasons. So in the summer months, participants reported to feeling under the most pressure from the media, from from media advertisements, from peers on social media, feeling most self-conscious about their body being on public display, and then also reported to engaging in most appearance comparisons in the summer as well. So it kind of feels intuitive, but... That's why I kind of like like papers like this because sometimes when things are intuitive, we don't look at them as much. So it's um... no, and it just makes so much sense. It makes perfect sense to me that you know, from about post Christmas, there's a ticking time bomb from kind of uh, external factors from like diet companies, like the the pressure of this idea of the kind of summer body in air quotes. It makes perfect sense, and also you know. We've talked about this, you know, the sun comes out, there is a pressure to feel like you need to show more skin or just even to be comfortable, show have more skin out. And, you know, that can be really complicated for a lot of people. So, you know, this feels so intuitive. Intuitive is the word. Yeah, completely. And I think there's something about this is a big, this is a trend. So it may not be true for every single individual, but on balance, because of all of these factors that we're, we're talking about, all of the different pressure around being more exposed in the summer, all the different pressure from corporations and that kind of thing, um, is why, on balance, more people feel more body conscious, more dissatisfied in the summer. So, yeah, it's a very neat study. So, well done, Scott and team. <laughs> yeah, well done, Scott. Stunning work. And Nadia, thank you for that delicious bowl of noodles. I am stuffed. Um, and, yeah, until next time, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Body Protest podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. You know what to do. And if you're left wanting more, why not check out our new Patreon for some exclusive bonus content. You can now also drop us an email at thebodyprotest at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by the sensational Daisy Grant and our dreamy music is by Eve Garland. And our new Knowledge Noodle jingle is by Zane Morris.